Hello, and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini. I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and today we get a chance to share a breakout session recorded at Forefront Festival 22 earlier this year. It's called Becoming a Professional Artist While Keeping Your Faith and Sanity. It's led by renowned hyper-surrealist painter Josh Thiessen. Born in 1995 in Moscow, Russia, Josh Thiessen is an international award-winning artist based near Toronto. He was listed as one of the world's top 10 prodigy artists by the Huffington Post. His hyper-surreal-shaped oil paintings, which take up to 1,700 hours to complete, reflect the interaction between the natural world and human-made structures, drawing upon his studies in philosophy, theology, and intercultural aesthetics. Mentored by masters such as acclaimed Canadian wildlife artist Robert Bateman, Josh has exhibited his work since 2006 in over 100 exhibitions, including the National Gallery of Canada and group exhibitions throughout the United States. He has sold upwards of 150 original paintings. In this breakout session, Josh shares the practical side of making an art career from a Christian perspective. We pick up here partway into the breakout session as Josh has just shared about his personal journey and is now delving into principles for the Christian artist. Now, my art isn't necessarily what you consider like religious art, but it's definitely been informed by uh, a Christian worldview. And so from my uh, Jewish background and my Christian heritage, um, the Bible has actually been a uh, inspiration for me in my artistic practice. And um, my latest painting series, Streams in the Wasteland, was inspired actually by the book of Isaiah and the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And so I was actually able to uh, study these while completing a Bachelor of Religious Education in Arts and Biblical Studies. It only took me nine years to complete the degree, um, but it was a great experience and really allowed me to, you know, study Isaiah. And I got reading about the prophecies of destruction of Babylon and the surrounding nations and how wild animals would uh, inhabit these abandoned cities. And so suddenly a flurry of ideas came to me of animals in deserted spaces, giving honor to their creator. So the title for the painting series actually comes from Isaiah 43, verse 20. And uh, this is Isaiah recording the, the words of God. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. So in the paintings, you'll notice that the wild animals actually have dominion over human civilizations, uh, implicating humankind for ignoring the creator's call to care for the earth. So after five years of working on this painting series, um, the 17 paintings were displayed at my first international solo exhibition at a New York-based gallery called Jonathan Levine Projects, which debuted in May of 2019. But years earlier, I'd actually taken a huge risk starting this unusual body of work without any promise of a solo exhibition. Painting in faith, though, I hope that I would be able to secure a major show at a reputable gallery. 
Um, following many different artists online, I got to know of this one um, Chelsea gallery in New York City called Jonathan Levine Gallery, and they were hosting this international art competition called Search for the Next Great, Great Artist. So I decided, you know, why not? This is a long shot. I'll submit a few of my uh, paintings. And um, to my utter shock, I came first place in the competition out of 2,000 artists. And as a result, was awarded a solo exhibition. The gallery owner said that uh, what really sealed the deal for him was when he uncreated my painting, Occidental Babylon, at the finalist exhibition um, that really led him to believe that, that, that I should win the competition. And so it proved to me that, you know, taking this crazy risk of spending upwards to 1,200 hours on a painting could actually pay off. But the important thing to, to note is that I'd already been diligently working on the painting. So when I was offered a solo exhibition, I already had quite a head start on the paintings, um, which is just a good thing to, to uh, remember that you can't just wait for big opportunities to come your way. Uh, you have to commit to making the, your best work first. Um, at the opening reception of the exhibition, I was thrilled that they also hung the painting stories that go alongside my works. And a lot of people commented on the environmental and spiritual themes that inspire my paintings. And it was kind of funny because uh, an aunt of the gallery owner was there and uh, she told me how much she liked the Bible passages that I referenced. And later the gallery owner, Jonathan, told me of kind of with a wimpish ink wink that he, he sure gained a lot of brownie points with his uh, born again family members. <laughs> um, so after completing um, this body of work of 17 paintings in my kind of narrative hyper surrealism style, um, with the lockdowns, it was a good time to put out another monograph uh, coffee table book uh, with the paintings and the, the commentary. This one here of the Gaming of the Shrew, you can see there's the, the art and then also the uh, commentary. Um, I should also mention, though unique with this project, is that it comes with a original soundtrack composed by musician Zach Thiessen, who happens to be my brother. And uh, viewers can, you know, look at the art and then also listen to uh, the musical tracks inspired by each of the Streams in the Wasteland paintings. Now, just wanted to give a shout out to Forefront 360 podcast. Um, this all kind of began when Rich uh, invited me on the show last summer. And uh, it was such a great conversation. He asked so many thoughtful questions. And so if you want to learn more about the whole Streams in the Wasteland project, uh, feel free to, to listen to that. It was in August. And uh, my brother was on the show uh, later in the fall. So if you are curious about the musical side of the project, I encourage you to uh, listen to his episode. We had to get the full set, the Teasing Brothers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so now kind of moving on to the practical side, as many of you who are artists know, um, art takes a long time to kind of develop your style and hone your craft. And uh, my paintings are, are very, very slow and time consuming. 
And so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of walk you through the creative process of my painting, Agnes Day, showing the, the step by step. So I toiled away on this painting for uh, 1700 hours. I completed it uh, between 2020 to 2021. And it was basically like the finale painting in my Streams in the Wasteland series. So you'll notice there's all these different animals in it. There's 17 in total. And so all of those species appear in the other paintings in the series. How, how big is that piece? Yeah, so yeah, it's it's actually hanging behind me, if you can see it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like uh, five and a half by nine feet. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, so it's the, by far the largest thing I've ever worked on. Um, but as you, as you can see in the picture here, um, it started, you know, from very rough concept sketches. I have a little sketchbook that I keep on my nightside table. And usually ideas come to me while I'm in prayer or reading scripture. And uh, I, I really start just from rough thumbnail sketches and then develop to a larger sketchbook. This sketchbook here I use to um, really finalize the composition for the painting. I also then uh, scan those sketches into the computer and do a digital color study. And so this really helps develop the limited color palette for the painting. Now, during the lockdowns, my uh, friend Monica was very gracious to teach me the basics of uh, 3D modeling. So I created this uh, 3D model just to understand the light and shadow on the uh, cathedral ruins and uh, also the, the proportions of how big one animal would be to another. So with every painting, I draw lots of inspiration from other artists. So for this one, uh, you can see on the left-hand side is Caspar David Friedrich's wintry landscapes, which I love. And then the painting on the right uh, is completed by an artist named James Jean. This was the painting for the film Mother. And I just really like the, the color palette. I keep probably over 100 to 200 images on my computer in a folder of all different artworks that have inspired me from artists who are you know abstract artists to photographers to album artwork and, and everything in between. Um, but uh, I, I never just copy one artist, of course. I like to, to mix it up so you don't get caught. Then the next kind of step in the process is uh, selecting all the photo references. So I used uh, 20 to 50 of my own photos and other people's photos and then create a mock-up in Photoshop. But this was um, a more finalized Photoshop mock-up that I made for uh, Occidental Babylon painting. You can also see in the top right, that's the color palette. And so I'll just stick with those colors for the whole painting. Um, here is a picture of the shop. My dad uh, is very gracious to build my panels. I, you know, I pay him and everything. He's a, a very good woodworker and uh, we got a CNC machine so that they can be cut out uh, very accurately. There is the uh, priming of the, the painting with uh, gesso and lots of sanding. So it's very smooth to begin. And then I transfer the drawing with uh, charcoal. 
And then I uh, seal the drawing with uh, Windsor Newton's fixative spray so it doesn't smudge when I start painting. Um, and I begin my underpainting with acrylics. And so for those of you who are artists know acrylics dry very fast, so you can create the 3D dimensional form of the, the painting and also correct any errors. I use this um, Stay Wet palette, which is in the bottom of this photo, which keeps the acrylic paints moist and wet so they don't dry out on me. Then I transition to the oil paint. And so I premix all of my paints and store them in these aluminum tubes. Um, I have one here. And uh, for Egg This Day, I had the most premixed tubes of any painting I've worked on. There are upwards to 100. So it was basically like a glorified paint by number. With my paintings, I always start background to foreground working you know with with larger brushes and then i um, switch to sm smaller more um, detailed brushes and uh, i also you know uh, blend the paint using you know a soft mop brush which is more like a, a makeup brush so um i then finish you know with the the very fine detail in the the end in the the foreground i yeah i wanted to just uh give you um, an example of all the different um, art supplies I use. Um, I use a variety of professional brands for painting as they offer, you know, different color spectrums. Um, but for my brushes, I use exclusively um, Princeton brushes. And for my uh, medium, what I use to mix the oil paint is just, you know, simply walnut oil. And for my thinner, it's natural EcoSolve, a uh, uh, alternative to kind of the toxic products that lots of artists use. And I also um, use all natural uh, Da Vinci soap for cleanup. I'm really grateful that my dad also enjoys uh, building my custom frames that I design and that I worked on distressing the frame so that it would look like a, an old antique altarpiece. So after working on the painting for eight months, I titled it Agnes Day, I signed it and also varnished it. So a longer essay for this painting appears in my book, um, Streams in the Wasteland. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, briefly share a little bit of the, the meaning for me. I drew influence from uh, historical paintings like this one. This is uh, Jan van Eyck's Adoration of the Lamb, also Sir Baron's Agnes Day. So as you probably know, in the, the biblical book of Isaiah, chapter 53, there's a prophecy concerning the suffering servant who is likened to an innocent suffering lamb. And uh, over the centuries, Messianic Jews and Christians have believed this to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who uh, was the morally perfect substitute who died on behalf of our sins so that we could be brought back in right relationship with our creator. But this um, reconciliation is also cosmic in scope. It's about the new heavens and the new earth where the wolf will lay down with the lamb, as it says in Isaiah chapter 11. 
Uh, in the meantime, though, we have to recognize that the whole creation has been groaning as a result of the curse of humanity's sin. And so we can all be involved in rectifying the harm that humans have done to nature, both in the past and in the future, and thereby, you know, foreshadowing uh, a better world. After completing this painting last spring, I was just floored that uh, my New York gallery, Ray's Contemporary, wanted to display it at the very front of their booth at the LA Art Show, where you know thousands of people came to see the the painting and all their paintings in the booth. But um, the gallery owners uh, noted that mine was especially photographed and people also read the story accompanying the painting. So it had uh, a, a real um, testimony to many people there. Now, the downside was the painting didn't sell. And that is usually more common for large paintings. They tend to take uh, several years before they sell. But I um, said so you need a pretty I, big wall. I know you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone has the wall space. That's for sure. Um, so the, the art of visit. So basically that experience with the LA art show, um, it's kind of a microcosm though, of the challenge of being a Christian artist in the art world and wanting to have, um, you know, a message through your art, but also needing to sell your art at the same time. And so, um, you know, I have to be honest with you that while I have sold over 150 original works, I've found that the paintings that are more overt in my Christian faith tend to be harder to sell. Mm -hmm. um, the, the elephant in the room is that uh, very few Christians are collectors of original art. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> Um, while many Christians have purchased by prints and they spent, um, you know, uh, a few thousand dollars on smaller original paintings of mine, um, most of my paintings uh, tend to sell tend to, to non-Christians. Um, although, you know, none of the gallery owners or the magazine editors who have featured my art have been Christians. They've been very, very supportive of my art, which I've been um so so blessed to to have their um support of my my work like uh the collector here um who he and his wife have purchased uh seven of my paintings and they're actually now considering buying another which is which is crazy i don't know how they have wall space um it might seem um that that i'm successful by you know uh, average artist standards, but it's not been easy pursuing a fine art career as a Christian. But I guess for me, like I have a missionary heart and I feel like God has called me to this world of people who are largely unreached uh, by the gospel. And I am blessed to be part of something that's called Incarnation Ministries. And through that, I have donors who help um, supplement my income. Um, that being said, there are many different things that I've learned over the years that you can be doing to um, increase the chances of selling your work. When I talked to Rich about what uh, he he wanted me to talk about at the conference, he asked if I would you know speak a little bit to the business side of uh, developing a, an art career. 
Um, I admit that as an artist, I don't have a really great sense for marketing or business. So all this has been quite a, a, a steep learning curve for me. And I've been really thankful to professional artists who helped me at a young age. Um, they passed on a lot of helpful information to me and also helped me avoid the, the pitfalls that uh, could be before me. I also attended uh, seminars at a local art museum, which proved to be very helpful for marketing art, like working with galleries, art festivals, and promoting your work online. I think the main difference with me is that I generally followed through and all the advice that people gave to me um, as you know, many artists are prone to kind of pushing off all the things that they don't like doing, like, you know, submissions and uh, social media or email newsletters, all the things we don't like doing, because of course, we just, we want to paint, we want to do our creative work, because that's the fun part. Um, a book that I found helpful is Carfac Information for Artists. It's very relatable to even people in, in the States. There's lots of helpful information, as well as a book by Maria Brophy. She has a podcast. Um, she's an art marketing consultant and gives out a lot of free information. Um, the reality is there are so many different ways to make an art career these days and, and many different um, business models. And there's uh, so many more ways, to, uh, more avenues to um, sell your work independently. I mean, you have the internet, social media, um, email newsletters are still a great way. Um, you can you know stage your own art exhibition in your home, which is what I did for uh, 10 years. We staged uh, annual open houses in uh, December, right before Christmas, and I made invitations and passed them out to local um, businesses. And so really, I found just starting with your, your local circle, your local group of family and friends, and moving out from there, um, is really how you you start building uh, a following. And so I'd also suggest just looking at the websites of established artists whose style is similar to yours and see you know what galleries they're part of or guilds, but just remember that their path might be different than yours. So you don't have to duplicate it necessarily, but it, you can also learn from other artists from their successes and failures. Um, as an artist, you have to get used to a lot of rejection but you can't get discouraged. You can't give up. I mean, I've been at this for over a decade and I still get um, emails of rejection and it's still it's still hard. So you have to develop a little bit of a, a thick skin. But, you know, if you keep working hard at your art and keep getting it out there, uh, you'll definitely increase your chances of selling the work, uh, which enables you to keep doing what you love and also to share it with other people who will also enjoy your art. Um, I think having a Christian community is also really important and an excellent resource for artists of faith to have a biblical and theological foundation. It's a great place to find encouragement and support. And so I just think what uh, uh, Forefront is doing is, is so awesome. And I hope you guys still stay connected with uh, Forefront in uh, the, the coming months.
Uh, several years ago, I was involved in starting an art gallery at my church, and over the years, I've been part of an inter-church uh, arts group, which I've helped co-lead. Um, during the pandemic, we uh, did monthly Zoom calls, and we watched uh, a video series on what it means to be um, an artist of faith, as well as we shared the art that we are creating, and also just prayed with one another, too. As the Apostle Paul says in uh, Romans 12, 15, um, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so applying to this to the creative community, um, we're called to encouragement rather than competition and also just bearing one another's burdens as it's um, hard being an artist. And I think especially during the pandemic, it's been harder. Many of the top artists throughout art history struggled with a lot of isolation, depression, and it eventually led them to take their uh, lives tragically. So I think if we just imagine what the Christian community can, um, you know, embody the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the kind of impact that we can have um, for non-Christians, showing what uh, an alternate um, countercultural artistic community can be, um, and, and that it can be very life-giving. Uh, earlier, I mentioned um, the gallery owner, Jonathan Levine. Um, this is him pictured with me at the exhibition opening. Uh, I developed a relation with relationship with him over the years and uh, really appreciated his uh, mentorship uh, through our conversations. I was actually able to even um, share about my faith with him, which was really cool. Interestingly, uh, this one time when he was telling me about how annoyed he was of, uh, uh, of all these ego-driven artists he'd worked with over the years, um, he told me that I actually had an advantage as a Christian because I'm called to live a life of contentment and humility. Uh, so it was really surprising to be told by a secular Jew that you know, the key to, um, you know, keeping my head and, and staying sane in the art world was um, my Christian faith. It, it, it was neat. Um, it was it was weird to hear. But I mean, he even admitted like the art world is such an absurd place. And so many artists are just trying to to work up, the, work their ways up the social ladder that um, he really saw humility as something that was was lacking. So, uh, yeah, we've had some interesting conversations. I think for, for me, um, it's not about taking like a territorial culture wars uh, approach with uh, Christians in the art world. I think Christians can positively impact the art world at all levels in order to change the kind of systemic narrative that keeps Christians out and ultimately prevents um, the gospel from going forward in these circles. And so I don't want to use art to kind of uh, sneak in the gospel into the art world. Uh, a helpful quote for me is by art historian Hans Ruckmacher, who said, we should remind ourselves that Christ did not come to make us Christians or to save our souls only, but that he came to redeem us in order that we might be human in the full sense of that word. So I think a Christian approach to the art world needs to be really redemptive. Um, instead of calling 
uh, Christian artists out of the world, we need to be calling Christian artists into the world, kind of like it says in, in John 17, 15. And we have to recognize the intrinsic value of the arts and all of the, the levels of the art world from, from galleries to art fairs to uh, auction houses and artist studios as these are God-given structures that can either be redeemed or they can be perverted. And so the kingdom of God is holistic and in an ultimate sense, there's no space in society that is too lost to be restored. Art world is a beautiful place and I know the Holy Spirit's already at work in the lives of many artists and gallery owners. But of course, it's also a uh, very deeply flawed world as well with lots of corruption and tax evasion. Um, there's this funny Instagram account. It's like satire called uh, Jerry Gagosian. And it's just uh, hilarious if you want to check it out. But it really, um, you know, exposes a lot of those flaws in a funny way. Um, the art world that I envision for the future is one in which Christian imagery is not just more accepted, but an art, art world that ultimately wants to submit to the way of Jesus and really benefit from the healing power of the Holy Spirit um, in a place where people are often, you know, uh, very depressed and, and searching for, for meaning and even sometimes nihilistic. And I know that this might sound pretty idealistic or ambitious, but I think as artists, this is the kind of kingdom that we're called to, to participate in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, whether you're an you know, author, a uh, musician, a visual artist, actor, or uh, a visual artist like myself. I'd like to just now conclude with um, Eugene Peterson's translation of the Sermon on the Mount, which says, we're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. And so I guess I just wanna leave with you with the idea that we all need to endeavor to illuminate the deep hues of the kingdom in our respective artistic fields and really pray for the Holy Spirit to um, you know, illuminate what our calling is and, and how we are to um, be Christians in the very spaces that God has called us to. Uh, so I hope you in, enjoyed uh, my talk. Uh, again, thank you very much for, for coming out. I hope it's been helpful. Um, feel free to connect with me on uh, social media. I'd be happy to answer any more questions that you might have. Um, if you're ever uh, driving through Canada in Ontario, you're always welcome to drop by my studio gallery. I'm also going to be hopefully doing a solo exhibition at uh, my New York City gallery, Rays, later this year. So maybe I'll see you at uh, the opening reception. Yeah, thanks so much for, for listening. And I guess uh, now we have some time for uh, questions. I actually have a question for you that's more a practical, if you don't mind me starting off. But um, yeah, how do you, do you come to, like when you were moving from being I guess, an amateur artist to, you know, mm -hmm. the artist that you are now, how did you like decide what to price your pieces at? <laughs> and the reason why I ask mm -hmm. that is because like I have done art shows like locally, very amateur art shows and really struggled with feeling like I've gotten advice on how, 
to price a piece. And to me, it feels absurdly high. Like, I'm like, why would someone, you know, yeah, whatever. So like, yeah. well, how come to that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, one thing you have to recognize that there's many different ways of pricing your work. So you'll get a different answer from many different artists that you ask, um, which which I have over the years, like some artists um, would price it by per square inch. So it's like a formula for that. Other artists price it by time. Um, but generally I find it's a mix of also like what your accolades are, like how many exhibitions you've had, how many awards you've received. Um, and so uh, I would also see uh, that like, okay, where, where are you showing your work? Um, what kind of price point are, are there artists similar to you pricing their work? Um, but then it's also challenging because it's also the artist's name that also factors into it. Um, so I could just share like what, what I did in early years was that I got advice like that um, artist mentor of mine when I was 10 years old, like she helped me price the works. I think they're they're around uh, $65 to $200 in my first exhibition, um, like when I was 11. And then eventually the prices started going up from there to uh, a couple hundred dollars. I, the, the Swan painting, Nesting Trumper Swan, was 2800 And that was uh, after being with Bateman and just meeting the other professional artists there. They helped me um, price my, my works and... Uh, uh, then you know the prices have have gone up from there over the years. So it it is it is a tricky thing. But as long as you find a formula for yourself that works, you can be consistent. Um, the faux pas is that you don't want to raise your prices super high and then drop them because like collectors won't like that because like they bought a work that has a certain value and then you're, you're undercutting them. So that's the only thing you wanna steadily raise your prices if they're selling, but uh, you also don't want to kind of outprice your, your market at the same time. But, but generally I think starting artists, beginning artists price their work too low, I find generally. So don't, don't be afraid of, of putting a good price on your work. Cool. Uh, I got a question. I, I have quite a few, um, but I'll, I'll save some time for other people. But um, just a lighthearted question first. Do you ever miss a painting after you sell it? Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I have in the past, um, especially ones where I didn't know the collector and it got shipped off somewhere or it sold uh, at a gallery. I mean, one of the benefits is that because I've sold most of my work um, independently through my studio, I've met a lot of the people who have purchased my art. So um, I, I know they're going to a good home and that they're going to be loved and, and cared for. Um, but I mean, to be honest, there's some paintings that I'm actually happy to let go because they just start <laughs> bugging me. I start seeing my mistakes in them and I'm like, oh, okay, that, that one can go down. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then another question too. Uh, so obviously you're a hyper-realist. Um, it seems like you discovered that pretty early on when you were um, painting animals. Have you ever tried your hand at abstract or uh, any other type or, or do you feel like hyper-realism is always the place that you want to be? Yeah, I, I have tried um, cubism and abstract expressionism. And I was pretty young when I experimented with those styles. Um, of course, I had to cut down my 
um, presentation, so I didn't include those. But yeah, I, I, and I still like to experiment with subject matter. I'm, you know, pretty committed now to hyper surrealism, hyper realism. That's what I love most. It just kind of fits my personality. But I always encourage people to experiment and try other styles because you never know what what you'll like. Um, like I know for for me, uh, even though it's still realism, but starting out within more of the the naturalistic wildlife art scene, um, it was a big jump for me to even place animals in unusual, unnatural settings of of abandoned ruins or um, kind of incorporate more like symbolism, whereas that wasn't really generally done with a lot of, you know, wildlife artists where it's more like um, just kind of a literal kind of anatomical depiction of an animal and its environment. So yeah, I think, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question because I, I'm all for experimenting as much as you can. Cool, thanks. I, I have just a quick one. When you say it takes you, you know, eight months or six months or whatever to paint a painting, you know, I, I'm an old fashioned guy. So is that six months of eight hours a day? Or is that like yeah. I paint for a week and then I take a week off to get a vibe, you know, and then I'm <laughs> yes. starting Yeah, ge generally um, it has been, uh, working on just one painting at a time. I think with say I did put it on hold for uh, one month to finish another, to do another smaller work. Um, that is the challenge about doing a large painting is that you don't then have a lot of smaller works in between to provide for shows. So uh, it just really depends. Some artists like working on multiple pieces at once to keep, you know, creatively active, keep the juices flowing, so to speak. But I mean, for me, I like working one painting at a time. And, and yeah, I do try to paint around eight to 10 hours a, a day. Um, oh, I mean, of course, yeah. there's the administrative work too uh, that, that you have to do. But yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. I have a question about your style. Um, the, early on, you showed pictures of the lion's face and then the swan and, you know, mm -hmm. realism. When did you find your, how did you find your voice? where you so it's actually yeah. depicts you are as distinct from others yeah it's such a good question and it, it's one that takes time and i just found that i kind of alluded to it earlier but um i was starting with more like the the traditional wildlife work but then i felt in the early years i hadn't really integrated my faith as much into my work, um, not like intentionally or, or anything. But then I felt when I was more free to not kind of fit a certain mold of the, 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 the wildlife artist, so to speak, that I then started noticing, you know, contemporary artists um, with, well, there's kind of this new contemporary movement it's called. And I thought, yeah, you know, maybe I should create work that more accurately reflects um, my full range of interest because I was also studying theology and biblical studies. And so I thought, you know, maybe this is something I could incorporate into my work. Um, and then also you'll notice that my paintings are usually shaped, so they're non-rectangular. And that's really intentional because I, I wanted to find something unique that I can do within the hyperrealism style to kind of break out of those, uh, that quadrilateral format. Um, so I think it gradually happened over time where um, now I have a pretty good idea of, of what my, my work is about. And so not being afraid of letting 
kind of the unique uh, quirks of your personality come out in your art and not feeling like you have to fit a certain mold. Um, I just see so many artists, you know, trying to copy other artists. And so trying to create your own kind of visual vocabulary and even writing down a list. Okay, what are the hallmarks in, in every one of my paintings that I'll want to include? Or at least what are some things I won't include in my in my painting um, or the kind of style that I use? I, I know like I have a, have a list of things. There usually has to be like a combination of a, an animal, usually um, a human civilization, a relic of some sort. And then there has to be some symbolic component as well. Um, and so, and my paintings are all set in a certain uh, time of day, kind of the golden hour lighting. And there's usually a very limited color palette. Um, I never paint with pure black or pure white. I always tint it with color. So uh, all these little things that most people wouldn't notice, but but I notice um, that that hopefully make my work unique. But um, yeah, that's something. Yeah, each person kind of has to figure out. But it's helpful just to write things down that that you want to always have in each painting. So just to follow up on that, I mean you're totally working from inside out. In other words, you're not trying to fit into some sort of scope of what you discovered mm -hmm. out there in the art world. You're not trying mm -hmm. to splice yourself in. You're, you're going from inside out. What the results are is arbitrary and unique to you. And then that can be placed in society however it does. Is that the way you work? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and to be honest, that is the hard part of working that way because um, you, you find that there are these like camps within the art world, like the art world is, is very kind of disconnected in some ways. Like there's one part of it that they'll know all their artists, but they don't know all these other artists in another place of that. Um, and so I think you make the work that you feel most passionate about, and then you find, um, the kind of genre or subculture out there that appreciates that art. And, and usually you can find people that will, will like the work that you do. Um, and sometimes that, that means, um, you know, following, like I know for, for me, like doing research about, okay, what kind of galleries show this kind of work that I'm doing? Um, I, I'm obviously not going to, you know, apply to a gallery that wants just abstract and conceptual and minimalist art. I have to go to a gallery that uh, values you know, the old master's technique of, of realism and craftsmanship. So yeah, you, you do have to find the right people and collectors will appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Forefront 360. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Then leave us a review or hit the share button to send it directly to a friend. If you're a creator or art enthusiast and you'd like to be on the show, let us know over on the Get Involved page on ForefrontFestival.com. Until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.